Okay, we're in Micah chapter 4, and we're continuing. This is part 2 of Hope in the Kingdom to Come, Micah chapter 4. We covered Micah 4, 1 through 8 last week, and we'll look at 8 through the rest of the, 9 through the rest of the chapter. So it's probably been, oh, I would say a good 12 years ago, maybe a little bit more than that, but, but you know, who's counting? I had the opportunity to take a two-week backpacking trip into the Copper Canyons of Mexico, okay, in the state of Chihuahua. Um, yes, that's really the state of Chihuahua. That's really the name. I'm not making that up. That is, you know, I don't know if that's where the name for the dog came from. Who knows? But they call it the Copper Canyon because during the day, the way the sand looks, it looks as if the sand is copper when the sun kind of uh, shines on it. So this is considered the biggest canyon in the world. And so uh, I had the opportunity with, it was me and about 12 other pastors. And um, we went out there for two weeks and, uh, and it was a great uh, mission trip. We got to meet many uh, primitive Indian tribes and got to kind of mark out some things for national missionaries to go in and give more gospel exploration. I got to have my first um, basically like cactus stew while I was out there. And so it was a riveting event. Um, Here's the interesting thing. That, when I went to the Copper Canyons and did that two-week trip, that was the furthest I had ever been from any kind of city lights. The furthest. I mean, you know, you, sometimes, you know, you might have gotten out to the countryside, but, you know, I mean, like, I'm talking at night, it was night. There was nothing illuminating in the horizon. And in that darkness of the Copper Canyons, I saw the stars in a way I've never seen the stars before in my life. But it took kind of an absolute darkness to see the stars. When you look at what's going on in the background of our text for Israel, for Judah, the southern kingdom of Judah, they are descended into a really big area of darkness. But it's in the darkness where you have the best opportunity to see the stars. So last week, the prophet in verses 1 through 8 talked to Judah about the coming, uh, the coming kingdom of God. And, and we really looked at it as something we call the millennial kingdom. We looked at it as heaven on earth. It, it's the kind of kingdom Israel was always looking for in verses 1 through 8. It was the main reason why they rejected Jesus, uh, that the Israelites did during Jesus' time, because they were looking for him to set up this kind of kingdom in the first eight verses, and that's coming someday later on. By the way, um, I said in the message that, uh, you know, if you're a student of prophecy, and by the way, it depends on your prophecy uh, kind of grid. You know, I, I told you some are amillennial, some are premillennial, some are pre-post-trib millennial, some are pan-millennial, some are pan pans. It's just all going to kind of pan out, you know. So every, everybody has their different view. But I did say that in my view, um, in which um, I would hold this debatable. I think when it comes to eschatology, we can debate some things. I think we all have to agree the Lord's coming back. Everybody agrees with that. But when I read the scriptures, it, it really seems like there's going to be a third temple, and that third temple is going to exist during the tribulation period, and the Antichrist is going to come in and declare himself God during that time. And what's interesting is where we think the temple would be, that's where the Dome of the Rock is. But I, I didn't say this to you last week, but 
You know, there's also some that speculate the, te- the original temple was not actually on the Temple Mount where it is right now. It's actually south of that in the city of David. Regardless of where, he- here's what we do know. If you were to go right now, go home and Google the Temple Institute. They already have all the furnishings to actually... They've already got the blueprints to build the next temple. Everything's ready to go. They just need the green light. They say they can have it built in six months to a year. They've already got all the utensils. There's already a red heifer. Um, so the sacrifices are ready. They've already been trained the priests. The priestly garments, the, the ephod, it, everything's there. Go to the Temple Institute. It's, it, it's there. It's all ready to go just turnkey, which is very interesting. Very interesting. So, by the way, even a couple years ago, I looked, and in front of the Western Wall, they actually took their, they already have their altar. They took and they uh, did a burnt offering on, on an altar, on a replica altar, just a couple years ago. Just to say this, um, there, there seems like there's a lot of things tracking down. Even this past week, and, and by the way, you have to be very careful when you start talking about end-time events, because... You do know that people have tried to like juggle dates and times through the years, and you've got to be very cautious and careful of that. But let's take, for instance, even today, um, Israel. Uh, they're surrounded. If you look at Israel, they're surrounded by basically no one that likes them. Okay, and, uh, But this past week, you know, it's interesting. The United Arab Emirates this past week has decided to recognize Israel as a nation. That's an Arab nation. There's like 30 nations, and most of them Arab nations, who do not recognize Israel as a nation. Among those now of the Arab nations are Jordan, Egypt, and now the United Arab Emirates. Now, here's what we do know. For another temple to get built, if, that, if, if, if your eschatology grid believes that, there has to be some kind of... Because if you understand the political situation in Jerusalem at that Temple Mount, even around it, to even put that, whether it's south in the city of David or, or somewhere near the Temple Mount, you, you know that politically there has to be some kind of peace deal struck between Israel and the Arab nations, and somehow the Antichrist is going to have something to do with that. But I would say this, you find it very interesting when you find that United Arab Emirates and there, everything is ready to actually go for the next temple. Now, I'm not saying that's... I mean, actually, when you look through history, there have been these little things that we thought. But what I'm telling you is this. There's a kingdom that's coming. There's a kingdom that's coming. And your hope is in the kingdom to come. And last week, he tried to, he tried to let them know in these first eight verses, there's a kingdom to come someday. Now, what's interesting is now we're going to cover the rest of chapter 4. And this is basically part 2, hope in the kingdom to come. This is where we put our hope. We don't put our hope in just paying off debt alone, although that's a great thing. We don't put our hope alone in getting married someday, although that's a great thing. By the way, anybody that's engaged or, you know, that's like their one prayer once you get engaged or kind of pre-engagement. It's like, Lord, I want you to come back. I remember. I can I remember before Cindy and I got married. Like, once we got engaged, I was like, Lord, I know what you're going to do. You're going to come right before we get married. I just know you're going to do this. Dear Lord, could you just hold off a little bit, right? I mean, that, but that's not where we put our hope. We put our hope in the kingdom to come. He got that to them in the first eight verses. Now, what's interesting, look in verse 9. It looks a little different. And by the way, who's what I love about the prophets. Actually, I don't love this. I hate it. In fact, sometimes this is what drives me crazy when I read uh, Hebrew literature, okay? 
they don't always go as linear as the Greeks do. Okay? Greek literature sometimes is very linear, but like the prophets, they are not beholden to linear at times. They'll float back and forth between timelines, and you're just kind of sitting there kind of reading it, just trying to think like, how can I piece all this together? So the first eight verses, he's really talking about this future kingdom, this future Davidic kingdom, I believe. I believe it's talking about the millennial kingdom. Some would say this is the eternal kingdom. If and Some in the more amillennial position would say, no, this is just talking about Jesus, the ultimate temple. But now you come to verse 9, and you see that he says to them, why, he basically says, Babylon's coming for you. Now, here's my deal. Why would this be something for the... For, why would I even, in this message, continue with this thought of hoping the kingdom would come? Because when we get to verses 9 through 10, he basically says, Babylon's coming for you. Why would there be any hope in Babylon coming for them? Why would there be any future hope in that? Well, let's look at it. Verse 9. Now, why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? That pain seized you like a woman in labor? Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion. Like a woman in labor, for now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country, and you shall go to Babylon, and there shall, and there you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. So the, the title of this message is still Hope in the Kingdom to Come. And he'd already told them about hope in the basically millennial kingdom to come, verse 8. And we're still talking about hope even though Babylon is coming. Now, why could they have hope while Babylon is coming? I'll tell you a couple of reasons why. Number one is the grace of God that he would even tell them this ahead of time and telecast this. But number two, also, he's building hope. He's saying, they're coming for you, but I will redeem you through that process. That when Babylon would come for them, they would be in captivity for 70 years. And during that 70 years, something remarkable happens to the children of Israel. During that 70 years of being in Babylonian captivity... Now, if you've been with us thus far, Israel was wholly given over to idolatry in a bad, bad way. So bad, they burned their babies. But what happens during the 70 years of Babylonian captivity, they start to see the, the, the reasons they're there. They start to understand the idolatry that had permeated their life. And we find Israel coming back from Babylon, back into the land. We'll get to that in the latter part of the prophet's. When they come back to the land, and for the rest of their history, Israel doesn't struggle with idolatry like they did in the past. So although things may look really dark for them right now, it took that disciplined hand of God to actually drive them to a point in life where they could see their sin and drop their idolatry. This is why I would say, hope in the kingdom to come. Because even though Babylon was coming to get them, and when you look in verse 9 and 10, you see that clearly. But at the end of 10, the Lord says, There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Now we know that later on Cyrus will release them, but I think there's something, there's a rescue that happens for them in verse 10 while they were there in this Babylonian captivity. Now don't mind you, this is going to be hard. He says in verse 9, Why now do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? They, they thought, well, there's, I mean, when they go into Babylonian captivity, there's no more king over them. But that doesn't mean the true king isn't still over them. Verse 9, why has your counselor perished? But they may think, well, the Lord's thrown us far from, but the Lord has not thrown them far from. It took the darkness of Babylonian captivity 
for them to see the stars of the grace of God in their life. Now, they were in pain. Don't get me wrong. It says in pain, pain sees you like a woman in labor, rife, which is this idea of what a woman goes through when she is giving labor without any kind of, uh, you know, pain medication. And she's just turning in the pain and the excruciation of it. Rife and groan, O daughters of Zion, like a woman in labor. By the way, a couple years ago, we studied the book of Lamentations. Lamentations is exactly what this verse is talking about. It's this writhing and groaning, this lamenting. Well, you find interesting, even when you read the book of Lamentations, that this is about Israel in Babylonian captivity. They are groaning, but yet they're finding hope in the Lord. So listen, when it's most dark, it's the best opportunity to see the stars. So their hope is in the kingdom to come. And their hope is in the true king. And in the midst of verse 9 and 10, as they're now hauled off someday to Babylonian captivity, their hope in the Lord would grow. Things would be completely transformed. Although they would be in an open country in Babylon, far away, nothing would be like it was. This disciplined hand of God was good for them and good for their nation. And not only was it good for their nation, that's the only way the Messiah could have come about. Listen, the Messiah could not have come about from a Jewish people who were doing all the things they were doing before the captivity, right? I mean, like, if, if Jesus, if God were to bring Jesus about during the time of their rampant idolatry, it's possible that they would have burned him before he could have, could have ever done anything. Do you understand that? I mean, that's how wicked they were. But this Babylonian captivity transformed them. Now, by the way, I don't think it made them completely sanctified, because we now, it's, it's kind of weird. And by the way, this is the pendulum swing we see in life sometimes. Here's Israel. Complete license, right? Now they run from license to kind of, by the time we get to Jesus, legalism. Okay? They kind of, they, they didn't obey any of the rules before the captivity. They come back from the captivity and as the next 400 years happen, they basically go to legalism. So it's kind of that pendulum swing that happens. But nonetheless, that's a riper environment for the Messiah than just a rampant, idolatrous kind of situation. So they drop it. We don't find Israel. And just so you know, their idolatry was huge. This was, I mean, it was, it was so cantankerous in their society. They dropped it during the captivity. Also during the captivity, this is where the scribes, the scribes start to emerge during the captivity. They start to understand like, wait a minute, we've got to write our literature. We've got to copy it. We've got to write it even more. And by the way, how do you know that today you have accurate copies of the Word of God in your hand because we have copies and copies and copies and copies because there was a group of guys called the scribes. And the darkest times is when you can see the stars most clearly. Even in the darkness of the Babylonian captivity, God's hand was completely over that. He was rescuing. He was redeeming. None of this was outside of his control. Why in Babylonian captivity? They no longer get to be in Jerusalem at the temple and worship. So what do they do? They start doing synagogues. And these synagogues are places for worship while they're away. And these are also places where they start to educate. They're educating each other, the people in the scriptures. If you discover before the captivity, it was, it, I mean, it was really weird. It was like almost they had hidden copies of God's word. And it's like, you know, Josiah finds a copy of God's word. And, and obviously it hadn't been something in circulation during the king before Manasseh's reign. So, but now in Babylonian captivity, it seems like they're really circulating the law of God, the Torah. They're, they're really looking at Deuteronomy. They're really doing all the things that God had called them to do, which was kind of weird. 
in the land of Israel, they were supposed to actually obey the law of Moses, walk in those covenant in those in those covenant laws, and then the Lord will bless them in that land. They don't. The Lord takes them out of that land, and it's weird. In a foreign land, they start to obey those rules. <laughs> they start to obey what Yahweh wants them to do in the Mosaic law. And then also this. If you've ever seen anybody in life, which by the way, this is, in, in, not trying to push into theory here this much, but, okay, even, even globally, if, if you've never experienced as a result of your ethnicity any kind of persecution, you typically don't, through history, cons- like consolidate with that ethnic group. Because if, if you don't have any persecution that's hitting your particular ethnic group, there's really not this idea that like things are against you and you need to kind of like band together. But if you are a part of any kind of ethnic group or class group or any kind of group, it, it seems like in history, if you experience any kind of disenfranchisement, you will just kind of consolidate and kind of see like, you know, we're, we're all together on this. Um, I, I'll give you an example. So, for instance, as a country, by the way, we've always, I mean, people look at like the politics of our country right now and like, oh, we're so divided. If you look at our history, we're a people that do a lot of debating, okay? We're a people who've not agreed very easily. I mean, this is, this is not a new thing we're experiencing in our day, okay? The, the, the political divide. I can remember when 9-11 happened. And I can remember there was just this huge division of Republican and Democrat. 9-11 happens. The whole country sees itself as attacked. And all of a sudden, it kind of galvanizes for a time period. Y'all remember that? Where it was like everybody was patriotic. Everybody, everybody in, the, in the Congress was kind of voting on the same thing. We were just kind of like pushing forward. Whenever a group or people or nation or ethnicity or anybody feels like they're being attacked and they, cons- they consolidate and identify with each other, there's this kind of strength that happens. For instance, Christianity. We're, at times in Christianity, we're fractured. But anywhere Christianity is persecuted... The Christians in those, in those communities, I mean, they don't really care. They just gravitate towards each other. They don't care a person's background. They don't care. Uh, I mean, they just want to get together with other people who love Jesus. Now, it's interesting. In the Babylonian captivity, said all that to say this. In the Babylonian captivity, the Jewish people started to not be as factious as they were before. I mean, how factious were they before? Well, enough that they split Solomon's kingdom up, right? That's how factitious they were. Enough that there was two different kingdoms in the whole, in, in, in the whole kingdom. But now they get in Babylon and they got nowhere to turn. It's either worship like a pagan or push into the Jewish people. And all of a sudden, the Jewish people consolidate with each other. Now they're reading the scriptures to each other. Now they're training and they've got their own synagogues and schools and the scriptures are being read. They're now dropping the idolatry. They're realizing the sin that had put them there. In the darkest of times, the Babylonian captivity, the stars were the brightest. So this is why we put our hope in the kingdom to come because if we hope in, if we hope in like the, alone in like our next president or coronavirus going away or, or whatever we're trying to put our hope in that's not really going to last us but there's a kingdom coming that will and god is maneuvering everything according to his purpose and plan what was happening with israel at this time even as they're going to this is a, this verse 9 and 10 is a future uh, prophecy of what's going to happen to them in babylonian captivity that was all a part of god's plan moving everything to the ultimate kingdom to come. I mean, because, because of that, 
they now are a people less given to idolatry. There are people that more can, can bring about the Messiah. And that actually tracks us to the Lord's kingdom. That's the, that's the start of the kingdom to come. That's the already it's here, but it's not yet in its completion. The ultimate final kingdom we're looking for is the new heaven and new earth. But do you understand like all this darkness has to happen? But in the darkness comes the best stars. Even, I would say this, in the midst of what we're, kind of our world is right now and the uncertainty that seems to be circulating all around, I would say this. This is a wonderful opportunity to see the stars. And those who will grow better and not bitter, and those who will, instead of just survive but will thrive, will be those that in the midst of darkness can get a vision of Jesus and they'll see the stars. This is why I keep telling people, you have to have your nose in the book. You have to have efforts at making disciples. Like, if you can see the kingdom in this darkness, you'll see Jesus. You'll see the stars in ways like you've never seen before in the midst of darkness. By the way, I would even tell you this. If you're experiencing darkness, if you're experiencing a loss of health, a loss of income, a loss of, of, of even loneliness right now, like so many people are now lonely because the social structures that they were used to, the accessibility that they used to have is not the same. Even that, that darkness is a wonderful opportunity to see the stars in ways you've never seen before. I've even talking to some people who are maybe in more, you know, there are some people that are in, are in really kind of vulnerable places and, and even some of our congregation, they're they're. Their health is personally vulnerable, and just talking to these people, you start to realize that the you start to see a difference. Basically, the ones who like have really bad health, and they're staying really you know, protective, and they're having to, you know, they don't have quite the social contact they used to have. When you talk to these people, the ones that are suffering are the ones a lot of times that have nothing to do with the Word of God in their life. They really don't, and like it, it's so small and minuscule. It's like they can't see the stars in the midst of their darkness. But the ones who are like, man, there are some who are thriving in the midst of this. Not because they embrace it and like it, but just that they, they, they see they've got a renewed vision for the Lord and His plan and His kingdom to come. That's where all their hope is put. So this is what we find. The hope, hope in the kingdom to come, He tells them, even though Babylon's coming for you in 9 through 10, there is a kingdom that I'm building. There is something that I'm doing through you. Now let's look at verses 11 through 13. Hope in the kingdom to come. Remember verse 1 through 8? It's that future millennium, that future Davidic kingdom, that, 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 that future kingdom that they were always looking for. Verse 9 through 10, it's, it's basically you still hope in the kingdom to come, even though Babylon's coming to get you in 9 through 10. And now in verses 11 through 13, he basically gets across this idea. Hope in the kingdom to come because everything's going to happen exactly as he's planned. That was interesting. Remember, these prophets, they're not beholden to such a linear timeline as us. Like I told you last week as we read about the millennial kingdom and the new heaven, new earth, even in one passage of Isaiah, we read it, I believe it was chapter 11, where you're, you get like the new heaven, new earth, and all of a sudden he's talking about like children not dying at a young age, and you're like, wait, wait a minute, how are kids dying in an eternal kingdom? Because the prophets, they don't seem beholden to as much linear timeline is what we're kind of tied to ourselves they just kind of go in and out they they write as the as the holy spirit inspires them so it's interesting in verse chapter four 
There's all this hope in verse 1 through 8 for a future kingdom. Then he tells them about what's going to happen to them in verses 9 through 10. Now, verse 11 through 13, the prophet decides to go way forward into the future, not to the ultimate kingdom to come, but to what's going to happen before the Lord's return. He basically points to what I would think, what I think is actually going to happen during the tribulation period, kind of leading up to the Lord returning. He now tells them about what's going to happen to this nation in the future. Which, by the way, I've also told you this. Prophecy, many times, is close up and far away at times. So sometimes one prophecy has an immediate context, an immediate fulfillment, but it may have a future fulfillment that's going to go along with it as well. When you look at verses 11 through 13, I think there is an up-close prophecy that, that's happening, and I think it actually has to do with Assyria, uh, that, that the Lord was, during this time, Hezekiah's the king. And remember, during Hezekiah's kingdom, Assyria gets backed off. 185,000 Assyrians are killed. And, and basically, the king of Assyria is running back. And he's assassinated shortly in the city of Nineveh. So I think that's happening. But I think something even more is happening that's pointing to a final day. Look in verse 11. Now many nations are assembled against you, saying, let her be defiled. And let our eyes gaze upon Zion. I think that's immediately up close. You could probably say that with Assyria. But long range, you could see that what's going to happen in the final war of Armageddon. Verse 12. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan. That he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. When you read the book of Revelation, you really find that the Lord sends his angel. And the Lord comes and basically... All, all of the enemies against God, all those who are warring against God are yet sheaves on the threshing floor. Verse 13, arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion. For I will make your horn iron, I will make your hooves bronze. You shall beat in pieces many peoples. You shall devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. Now let's look at verse 11 through 13. He's telling them to hope in the future kingdom to come. But he's telling them that basically there's going to come a time when everybody's going to war against you. And I will strengthen you. And I will be with you. And I will settle you during that time. Now, this is very interesting for them to get this kind of message. Because remember, they, they had just been attacked by Syria or shortly will be. And the Lord will take care of that. And then someday Babylon's going to come for them. So... I don't think he's talking about Babylon in verse 11 through 13, because Babylon actually does overtake them. But he paints for them a future day, which is interesting. If you're a Jewish person and you get this prophecy and you see verse 9 and 10, and you already know that your prophets have said that you're going into Babylon in captivity, you already know this. Isaiah's already said it. And yet, you know that there's going to come a future day in the future. You don't know where, but in the future... That you're still a people, and that as a people, you're still going to be fighting off the enemies against you. That gives you a lot of hope going into the Babylonian captivity. That you're not going to be eradicated. That your people will still stand. That all the covenant promises that God was going to do from Abraham through David, that all these would come to fruition. Are you tracking with me? Do you understand? Even that idea lets them know there's another day. I mean, even today, our country's just been around a couple hundred years. I can't promise the future, but if you were to say to me, you know, America at someday a thousand years from now. I mean, like that would give you a lot of hope in the middle going, wait a minute, it's still going to be around at that point. So verse 11 through 13 lets them know, even as a people, like 
the nations are going to come against you, but the Lord is going to strengthen you. Now, let's kind of look at this. You know, it's a, it's a near, but I also think it's a far prophecy. So let me lay this out. Look at the text, and I find this. Now, many nations are assembled against you, saying, let her be defiled, and let our eyes gaze upon Zion. Now, I think it's, it's a close-up prophecy of Assyria at the time, but I think this points forward towards when the Lord returns. When the Lord returns, the nations are going to rage against the Lord, but they're, according to our script, what I can read, they're going to be raging against Israel as well. And if you look at the stage right now, and actually all of Israel's existence, there's always been animosity towards them, but even right now, there are 30 nations on the UN Council that that do not recognize, I'm sorry, now 29, because United Arab Emirates just did this past week. There are 29 nations that don't, that, that are on the UN Council with Israel and do not recognize them as a nation. There is, I mean, so it's kind of like this. If you look at the Middle East and kind of look at land area, it's kind of almost like this. It's, it, and let's kind of like think of America, okay? Think of America right now and let's pretend America is the Middle East, okay? Can you do that? America is the Middle East, okay? And you're like, you mean we got a lot of oil? I'm like, no, no, like just think America is the Middle East. You mean we're building like, like luxury vacations out on the middle of the ocean? No, not yet, okay? We've just got, you know, oil wells and pumps and stuff like that. But picture America and, and think Middle East, and then this is kind of how it works. You've got New Jersey. I've not met one person that likes New Jersey yet. Do y'all know that person? Now, I know people from New York do not like people in New Jersey, okay? I mean, like, yeah, I mean, you talk to people who, like, raise up New York, there is always some kind of, like, you know, I, and only one time in my life, one time in my life, I, I've only been in New York once, and then I had to go see a friend, you know, so I drove up to the Capitol, and then driving back for a little bit of the time, getting back to um, LaGuardia Airport, which is a dump, okay? Like, if you've ever been there, you know, you're just like, you can't do better than this, and I remember driving through New Jersey and just feeling this dark cloud, right? Just like, follow me all the way through New Jersey. And I was not even predisposed to that bias at the time. So let's just pretend, right? No one likes New Jersey. And this is how it's kind of like in in the Middle East, except a lot worse, all right? We don't want death to New Jersey. But it seems like no one likes New Jersey. But New Jersey is pretty small, isn't it? So when you look at Israel, Israel's landmass is about what New Jersey is. Then when you look at the surrounding kind of Arab nations, it kind of looks like the land area of kind of the rest of the United States. And so, and then what you have is this. Different of these Arab countries, and we would say different states in America, not all these states completely like each other, okay? You know, if you're Texas, you don't care what anybody thinks, right? You just like yourself, right? If you're, if, if you're on the West Coast or... You know, or if you're in, you know, like, you know, Massachusetts, you think you know more than everybody else in the country, right? And so if, if you're in the middle, you just think everybody outside is just a bunch of liberals, right? So even within that, there's lots of conflicting ideas, but everybody's agreed this. We don't like New Jersey. Now, that's a small but really probably insufficient comparison to understand geopolitically. No one likes Israel over there. None of these Arab nations, except now for three, have created diplomatic ties. Now, how does this all fit in? I mean, we, we think this. If there's going to be an Antichrist, the third temple, and, and 
there is a Palestinian, there's, there's a, a Palestinian president, an Arab presence that has the Temple Mount, the Dome of the Rock right there. Like, how is there going to be another temple? I don't know. Is it, is it going to fall and, and, or is there, it going to be built in the city of David? I don't know, but it seems like in prophecy that's going to be there. And somehow, all these hostile nations will have to not be hostile towards Israel for that to happen. Only to later... By the way, because I mean, you, you know this, like the United Arab Emirates this past week, the reason there they recognize Israel is not because it has anything to do with ethics. Okay? What do you think it has to do with? Money. Right? Money. They want to trade. They want to open up business. They want, I mean, the United Arab Emirates. I mean, if you've flown in one of their airports, like it's a nice place, man. They're, they're I mean, Abu Dhabi, they're trying to do things. I mean, they're trying to diversify from just an kind of oil barons to like, this is the place where technology and vacation and like, these are really nice places to visit now. You know, right in the middle of the desert kind of stuff. It's money. Now here's the deal. You can change, you can change a person for money, but you can never change their heart, right? So when the Antichrist comes in and, and, and calls himself God and, and it throws an uproar with Israel, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty confident the Arab nations will just go right back to the heart that they truly have for Israel. So we find this. There's something, there's a stage that's being set. I don't know if it's going to be, like I've never been able to say, I think the Lord's going to come back in my lifetime. For me personally, I just don't know because so many people have thought that. Would I say this? It, are we close or does it at least seem like, man, so many, so many breadcrumbs are sitting out before us? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I have no doubt that through... This, through the coronavirus, we're going to have an upsurge with contact tracing. And at some point, contact tracing is, it has to tie itself into some kind of mark of the, some kind of tracking system. We know that when you read, when you read Revelation, you find that when the Antichrist's reign has something to do with some kind of tracking that allows it. I mean, like, I, do, do I know that's a direct correlation? I don't know, but it seems like things build on itself sometimes. Do, do I see that, that more Middle Eastern now we've got three, Jordan, Egypt, and United Arab Emirates that are actually recognizing Israel as a nation. I mean, we, these are interesting things. But here's what's also interesting. You look at basically, you know, here's, here's Israel. They're New Jersey, right? And this is where it's different. New Jersey does not have a lot of firepower, okay? If the rest of America wanted to come against New Jersey, they're not going to stand, okay? Now, I'm fairly confident if Texas was to try to declare war on the rest of the U.S., I'm almost confident they can stand, but I'm a Texan, and we have this kind of built-in bias that we think we can succeed from the Union at any time, and, you know, we'd be better and you'd be worse. It's just part of being born in the Republic, right? You know, you just can't get it out of you. But here's what I do find this. Israel, when you look at them militarily, technology-wise, no one can touch them. If any of those countries thought they could, they would wipe Israel off the map right now. But God has, you know, with a lot of the help from the U.S., they are militarily much more powerful than these other countries, much more sophisticated. Even when you've seen over the, the second infantada that happened years back, where, you know, Hamas from the Gaza Strip was... You remember when they were launching bombs and it's like their, their Iron Dome was just shooting these bombs out and you were just like, okay, well, this is ridiculous. Why, does, why, do, why, do these, why do they keep launching bombs at Israel? Their technology is so superior than, you know, just these, you know, kind of rockets that you're launching off someone's back. Well, 
Look in the text. Look at verse 13. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron, and I will make your hooves bronze. I don't know much about animals, but I don't know many animals with bronze hooves. Right? It's, 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 it's more protein. But he says basically, I mean, I don't know many animals that have iron horns. Okay? It's, it's more protein. But there's this idea that Israel will be strong. If you ever look at a time as Israel strong, I mean, look at them. Which, by the way, even when you look historically, in 1948, Israel gets recognized as a country, right? Instantly, within a year, there is, there is war with the Arab nations, and Israel wins it in that very infant form. Then you have, in 1967, the Six-Day War, where the Arab nations come against Israel. And what happens? They win it again. You have a first and second uh, infantata, and, 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 and Israel wins that. Like, every time you... Every time you keep trying to attack Israel, it doesn't really work out for you, okay? Like, New Jersey is really strong. Why is that? I think we see some things in 11 through 13. That, that Zion will be strong, that they'll be able to thresh. Now, I think the ultimate day of Israel's threshing isn't yet. I think somehow that's going to coincide with the nations. I mean, where is Armageddon going to happen? It's going to happen in Israel. Where are the nations going to gather for this final battle? It's going to be, it's going to be in Israel. We find that even during the tribulation that there's going to be a hiding place for Israel as the Antichrist comes against them. We, we, so I, I, all I know is this. When I look around right now, I'm amazed that how can a people be away from a homeland for 2,000 years and then have a homeland, still maintain a people? Which, by the way, remember, in the darkest time is when you see the lights the best. I wonder sometimes, where did Israel start to cons- like solidify them so much as a people? I wonder if it was during the Babylonian captivity, where they're taken off, they consolidate synagogues, they, they're, they're training, they're kind of like insulated within themselves, maintain a people, even though when they come back to the land, only to be scattered years later, when, the, when Jerusalem gets destroyed in 70 AD. It, I mean, Jews have been scattered throughout the world, but they'll like establish communities and marry within themselves and stay within themselves. It's interesting that how could a people do that and still maintain a people themselves? I wonder, does it have to do with like verse 11 through 13? Even when you look at how many Jewish people continue to move back to Israel in droves, I wonder, does it have anything to do with 11 through 13? Now, here's what's interesting. And and which, by the way, just a side note. Israel's original design was to be a people to give the gospel to the world. Now, I think there's coming a day when Israel will do that again. I really do, the more I read, the more I study. I mean, that's going to be, I mean... When you read Matthew 24 and you find about like, what's going to be some of the things about the Lord's return? There's going to be earthquakes, and, and, but I don't think that's the, great, the greatest indicator, I think, of Matthew 24 is that you're going to see a lot more global evangelization. And you see some evidences in Revelation that there's going to be this Jewish presence of global evangelizing that's going to happen. In fact, it's naturally in the soul of a Jewish person. Although the soul of a Jewish person right now, I would say a non-Christian Jewish person is not, I want to give Jesus to the world. In the soul of the average Jewish person is the idea that I'm going to make the world a better place, right? And if you've, have you ever noticed that where Jewish communities are set, they seem to make the place a better place, 
right? I mean, do you, you understand that? Like, they seem to do really well in economics and industry and pushing things forward. Well, what happens when that kind of ambition gets married to Jesus Christ, right? What kind of ambition kind of goes out? So you find in Alerts 11 through 13, the nations don't like Israel. And you can see that today. They want them gone. Look in verse 12. These nations, but they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan, that he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. So the nations, they don't know. If Here's what's interesting. If you want to know what you should do right now, like just read the scriptures. Like what could all these warring nations do? Just read the scriptures. Maybe that's, uh, of course, that's probably not true at all, but maybe that's why the United Arab Emirates, you know, decided to do it. Maybe they read this passage this past week and they're just like, ah, yes. Probably didn't happen, okay? But nonetheless, here's what we find. They do not know the thoughts of the Lord, nor do they understand his plan. So here's what the Lord's done. The Lord's saying, Israel, I, in verse 1 through 8, I have a kingdom that's coming someday. And, and that kingdom is going to be glorious. It's going to be wonderful. And also, Israel, you're going to have to go through Babylonian captivity. But also, Israel, verse 11 through 13, there's going to come a day when the nations come against you, but you're going to have like an iron horn and iron hooves, and they're going to be on the threshing floor. I have a purpose and plan for the way I've designed everything, and you're going to be strong, and this is going to be a part of my return. So this is all, this is why in the end, our hope cannot be just in what's in front of our face. Our hope has to be in this kingdom to come. And I would say kingdom to come. I would say in this already not yet kingdom to come. Because the kingdom started when Jesus came. I mean, we get to actually bring people to the kingdom right now. When we declare the gospel message and someone repents, when someone, when we disciple people, they're already now becoming a part of the already not yet kingdom. It's the already, it's right here, but not yet, meaning it hasn't reached its full fulfillment. It, It hasn't fully come to term yet. We're already there. Our hope is to be put in that kingdom to come. Not just in the kingdoms we're trying to build right now. The kingdoms we try to build right now, they are just sinking sand. They're not going to make it. And I can't think of another wonderful reason why we shouldn't take communion here in a little bit. Because when you take communion, you're once again putting your hope in this kingdom to come. You're, You're rehearsing your hope in the cross and you're thinking you're you're reviewing your hope for the kingdom to come this is why i love taking communion it lets me remember that this is normal there's a marriage supper of the lamb that i'm going to come to someday remember this worship team you can i say worship team we got a lot of team out we got like two people coming up here carly and david they're our diehards you know pray for beth she's been getting over some sickness and uh as y'all know that uh, Jared, Jared has a broken arm. He's learning to play drums with his mouth right now. So we'll, we'll see how that works out. <laughs> or his feet. You can wave with your feet. I think you can do that. Sounds like a good idea anyways. But here's the deal. Where Israel is right now, it's dark. But God's letting them know you can see the stars in the darkness. And I don't care what your darkness, actually, I care, but you know what I mean. Like, whatever your darkness is, this is a wonderful opportunity to see the lights. If 
you can do verse 12. Have the thoughts and understanding of the Lord. And you're, as you start reviewing it through the pages of Scripture, and you start working in your discipling relationships and keep pressing towards the kingdom, you're going to see the stars in the midst of your darkness. But if you're not there, then you won't. Let's stand and pray together and praise the Lord. And then let's rehearse the kingdom as we take communion. What another chance as God's people to, to review and think and rehearse and hope. Today is a day of, for some, today is a day of pain. They've, they've, they think about someone they've lost, but their hope is in the day that they're back with that person. And then today is a day where some are just discouraged. They showed up this morning, or they tuned in online, or they're watching it later, and they're a little discouraged about life this week. Would you let them see the stars in the midst of darkness? Would you let them throw the weight of their hope in your kingdom, not our own? Help us for your glory, in Jesus' name.